Please note there are some very emotional and distressing scenes within this podcast that may not be suitable for everyone. Hello and a very warm welcome to How Did We Get Here? This is the podcast where me, Claudia Winkleman, and my brilliant friend, the wonderful Professor Tanya Byron, look at challenges faced by real-life parents or their family members in special one-to-one sessions. It's something we've wanted to explore together for years. Each time Tanya talks to the person facing difficulties, I'm behind a curtain, not an actual curtain, you understand, I'm in another room, ready to ask Tan questions and to hopefully understand a bit of her process as a clinical psychologist too. This time we meet Donia. She has two daughters, aged four and seven, and a long-time partner named Thomas. Donia is a self-made businesswoman and author. In 2017, Donia was diagnosed with cancer and whilst receiving treatment, her daughters started sleeping in her bed. I just overcompensated because I thought, oh my God, if anything happens to me, um, my babies are going to be without a mum. So I just thought, let me just do the best thing I can. Now all clear from the cancer, Donia wants help to get the girls sleeping in their own beds. But she learns that setting boundaries for her children has been difficult because she's held back by her family's experiences. I can't handle people suffering. I'd rather take the pain myself. So let's go and meet her. Hi, Donia. Hi, Donia. Hi. So lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming. Have a seat. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's okay. Um, why are you here? I'm here because I really want some help with my kids, getting them out of my bed. How old are your kids? Um, they are four and seven. And how long have they been in your bed? Um, my seven-year-old's been in my bed for over two years now, and my four-year-old's been in my bed since newborn. Goodness me. So I know. <laughs> talk me through the routine, if you can. I mean, are you all just open about it? They don't start in their beds and then creep in? Or do you everyone sort of brush their teeth and get snuggled up in mummy's bed? Brush their teeth. Um, the eldest does get into her own bed, but that lasts five minutes and she comes up. The little one is quite um, strong-minded and will fight and fight and refuse to go into her bed full stop. But she's been like that from day dot. Does she think that your bed is her bed then? Yeah. Daddy's, for the last year solely, he's had to move into his own bedroom. And how does he feel about that? Well, I think obviously he's frustrated. Yeah. But he doesn't wake up in the night, so if I put them in their own beds, they will scream and scream and scream, and I can't get any sleep. And obviously I'm working as well, so I'm really busy, and it's just... It was just the easiest solution all round. Of course, I totally get it. Sometimes, you know, you yeah. just have to make life yeah. simpler for yourself. Yeah. Did something happen that led to this? Yeah. My eldest daughter, we had no issues with her sleeping in her own bed until the day I got diagnosed with cancer, which was two years ago. And she started wetting her bed, which she never did before, and having really bad nightmares and just wanting to stay in my bed. She didn't know what was going on. She was scared. Mummy lost all her hair. So I felt guilty and I just thought, you know, whatever my kids need, I'll be there for them. And obviously I got better and I still can't get her out of the bed. But they must have been 
very scared. How much did you mm. tell them? So with oh a child who wasn't even two and one who was five, I was like, oh my God. It was really hard. I didn't know how to say because I was kind of grieving myself. Of course. When I went through my treatment, I then wrote a diary and then published the book and then helped my kids that way and illustrated and put them in the book. And so then I was getting quite exhausted. I had to find a solution where I could functionally work. So I was still working throughout chemo as well. So we just all then slept together yeah. and then I worked at night to try and catch up with stuff. Where would you work? In the in bed? In my with bed them. with the kids. With a laptop and they would be fast asleep. asleep. But they felt safe. Cause they felt safe because they are with me. I could get on with my work rather than battling. What kind of a dad is your partner? Is he very hands-on? Yeah, when he's there, but he kind of works seven days on, seven... So for like three months, he's completely gone. <laughs> Let me ask you, what do your family and friends think of the fact that they are in your bed and that you're not in bed with Thomas, your partner? I don't really tell too many people because I I know I'll get judged for it. So there are lots of people who do co-sleep, who share, yeah. but you've come in saying, I'd now like them to I'd, sleep in yeah. their own rooms. Now I'm at a level now, actually, I'm better. So I need now just that little bit of help because they won't listen to anyone. Okay, well, thank you. It's honestly such a privilege to meet you. I think you're brilliant and oh, I'm going to you. get Tanya Byron. Yeah, I hope she can help. <laughs> if anyone can, if anyone can. So lovely to meet you and I'll see you at the end. Okay, thank you. I'm good, thank you. It's nice to meet you. Yes, you too. It's very nice to meet you. What do you want to leave with? What is it that you're asking me to think about and you're asking me to help you nail for yourself? I really want to nail consistency with my kids because that's one thing I kind of put my hands up to when I'm tired or can't really cope with anything. I'm just like, right, fine. Consistency in terms of discipline, Discipline. And sticking to things like bedtime routine, developmentally they're seven and four mm. it should be in their own beds well it would be useful for them really and for you and I think mm. this is bigger than just my kids should be sleeping in their own beds this mm. is something about your life your lifestyle and the impact on your relationship yeah is it threatening the relationship yeah. it is threatening it mm. where do you think you and he are at with all of this I feel very emotionally detached I think both of us are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been going on, obviously, for quite a while. He's now in his own bedroom. Right. And the children, if he tries to come up, the children, no, Daddy, go into your own bedroom. This is our bedroom, me and Mummy's bedroom. So they're very powerful in very, the dynamic. Very. I mean, if we were to draw a picture of the family, there'd be you at the top with the two girls either side of you, and he would be sort of quite low down in the hierarchy of... yeah. Of, of the position in the family. Absolutely. And how does that impact on him? How does that make him feel? He obviously gets frustrated because he tries and then I am I get exhausted because he doesn't hear them in the night. I don't know if it's a, a mother thing. But often, you know, a significant health issue mm. has resulted in what you described. Yeah. So I want to reassure you, this isn't something that I've never heard before. Okay. But it can cause really some quite severe resentment in the couple. Do you row? Does it cause rouse? Does it yeah, cause Yeah, I get discord? very resentful towards him. And even when I'm stressed with the kids and he's at work, I'm just messaging. There are so many layers. And actually what yeah. we need to do is start to peel back some of the layers. When it becomes multi-layered, 
yeah. that's when the confusion that's right sits in and then actually everybody then just gets stuck yeah. and it feels like you're stuck very stuck <laughs> and the problem is you and Thomas can't function as a couple thinking about how do we address the sleep issue mm-hmm. Because the relationship has been so fractured That's right. by the fact that he's not in the, the bed, yeah. your bed, That's his right. and your bed, yeah. the girls are. Yeah. Let me ask you something about your girls. Tell me, why do you think they are so powerful? Because it's interesting to me that they say, no, daddy, you can't be here. It's something about the fact that what your daughters say yeah. goes. Tell me a little bit about that. I think... I felt guilty. So it's guilt. And when I got diagnosed with cancer, I just felt really guilty. I was away from them a lot. So I kind of substituted that they're with me, whatever you know time they want to spend with me, even if it isn't the night. My eldest never wet the bed, but she started wetting the bed. The nightmares were really bad and they were scared. And, they didn't they're, and their distress distressed you. I just overcompensated because I thought, oh my God, if anything happens to me... Um, my babies are going to be without a mum. So I just thought, let me just do the best thing I can. You said, if anything happens to me. So that sounds to me like you felt there were times when you felt you were looking down the barrel of a gun, that you were thinking, am I going to die or even Mm. I am going to die? Yeah, I mean, I got sepsis and I was in intensive care. Um, I had a lot of operations. So that sepsis obviously can lead to multi-organ failure. So that is critical. Yeah, I did prepare for my death. I I basically, at one point, I did think I was going to go. And then after all the chemotherapy, there was still cancer in the lymph nodes. So I just felt I had a double mastectomy. You know, obviously, they removed all the lymph nodes in the end, so it was fine. You know, I'm all clear now, which is great. Um, But you still have that niggle. Can it come back? Because I'm a genetic BRCA carrier. I was going to ask you. So Um, explain what you understand by BRCA, just so that I'm clear. BRCA is a a, a gene which I inherited from my mum and my grandmother and my great-mother. My grandmother and my great-mother have have all passed premenopausal. So it's a bullet that's ricocheting through the female line. Yes. And you have daughters. Two daughters, exactly. So this was another guild because it's like they've got 50% chance of now carrying the gene. When are you going to screen them? Can't screen until they're 18. Right. So that's your holding on to that. It's really important mm. people understand that you're holding this now mm. until they're 18. Yeah. The issue with the BRCA gene and the fact your girls are 11 and 14 years away from being able to be screened for yeah. it, it doesn't really ever go away. No. I think we should just say a couple of things just about the BRCA gene. For anybody who's listening who... A BRCA gene is passed down sometimes and sometimes not, but you're tested for it. Mm-hmm. And it means that your chances of having breast or ovarian cancer are through the roof. So that's why people will often have Angelina Jolie tested mm-hmm. positive for the BRCA gene. Sorry to bring up a celebrity, but... No, but it's a useful... It's know, a u- it's so useful, you yeah. have to often... You have your ovaries and fallopian tubes removed and your breasts. Mm-hmm. And if you've had it, there's a 50% chance that your children will have it and she does have two girls. Mm-hmm. So that's that must be playing on her mind as well. well. It feels like a sword of Damocles hanging over her head, doesn't it? And 18 is when they will be screenable. Yeah. So there's a long way to go and there's always in her back of the mind, you know, maybe not both, but probably one. And that is, that's really hard. That's yeah. really hard. So, you know, this 
is where the trauma of the cancer never goes away. That's a lot to hold on to for what the youngest is for, for the next 14 years. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Back to you again, if that doesn't sound too weird. Have you had any genetic counselling at all? You know, that I some... pushed to have some CBT therapy, actually. Yeah. It helped a bit. Cognitive behaviour therapy is the evidence-based therapy for anxiety and depression. Yeah. And that's what a lot of mental health practitioners, that's mm. one of the first-line talking therapies. Yeah. And actually, I can see it possibly has helped, although I think that's just how you're made. I think you're a practical, pragmatic mm rational sensible woman I think you just get on with things I think you face problems you find solutions Mm. you're a self-made businesswoman Mm. you've got yourself through you know the cancer the bit of you I think that's been completely neglected Mm. is something more about this underlying feeling Mm. and I think the trauma of considering your own death yeah you know the obvious hypothesis would be when you look at children who are in a bed and Mm. a partner who is sort of banished somewhere else, Mm. is separation anxiety. Yes. yeah. It's not just, I would say, their separation anxiety. Mine. Sorry, Sally. It's mine as well. Tell me about that. I experienced um, just quite a few traumas in my life. So I lost my sister very young. Um, She was 26, um, quite drastically. How? Traumatically, she committed suicide. So... I'm sorry to hear that. That was 15 years ago. She got postnatal depression and it just went downhill from there, unfortunately. I was really frightened of my children having to experience death at a very young age because I know how it was really tough for me for the first two years. Was it unexpected um, when you got the news or was she... I mean, can you tell me a little bit about it, if if that's okay? Yeah, that's fine. Um, Yeah, she, she had... A little. She had two children. One was very, very young, six weeks old at the time. That's that's really and, tragic. Yeah, um, I found out because her partner at the time phoned me and said, um, "Donya, uh, your sisters were in the petrol station, and she's she's. I've gone to pay for the petrol, and she's done a runner in the car. And I was like, "What do you mean?" Because I've been trying to phone her, phone her, and um, we can't get through. So I was like, oh, my God. But I kind of knew inside that something wasn't great. And then next, I found out from the radio, a young girl had been taken in to... Um... Uh, sorry. No, it's all right, sweetheart. It's OK. It's all right. Sorry. Let me get your tissue, darling. It's OK. <laughs> and um, she'd... Uh... Here you go. I'm give you some tissue. Yeah, she... Um... She jumped off a multi-storey car park. Oh, dear, I oh dear. And um, so it was weird. Um, they said a young girl had been taken into hospital. So I've called up the, um, the A&E, which I thought she would be in. I was working up in London at the time. And I said, phone of the hospital, can you just tell me this? We can't disclose any names. I said, can you just, I'm just going to describe it to you. Please, can you just tell me? It was really weird. It was like an instinct. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's only a year between us. So we were mega close. And um, they said she's got, um, they confirmed she had dark hair. And I knew that was her. I just ran through the hospital and I could just hear my family had obviously arrived at the time and I could hear the screams. So I was just like on autopilot and I just ran and ran and ran. And there she was. 
Yeah, and she died. She was, yeah, she died. Oh, I'm so sorry. So it was, uh, in my life, I've kind of overcompensated. I can't handle people suffering. No. So it's like, I'd rather take the pain myself. I see that, yeah. And then I just, you never get over something like that, but it got easier, should we say. And obviously when I got my diagnosis, it was like, the first thing I said to my mum, who was in the room, because obviously it really affected my parents, obviously, you know, she was the firstborn child. And when I got my cancer do- diagnosis, they were like, how do you fe- feel? Or the, the doctors said, you know, shook my hand and, you know, you've, you've, you've got cancer. And I was like, OK. And I just burst into this. I was like, my mum can't go through anymore. It wasn't like anything else. My first reaction was like, please don't put this on my family. Because yeah. I knew the pain. Obviously, look at me in tears now, 15 years later. You feel guilt. You weren't able to do enough. And then putting myself in the position of, of being diagnosed with cancer, I was thinking, oh, my God, and I'm now going to create suffering for all these people again. I guess that's where I got to with my overcompensating with the kids and I spoil them, you know, I do. And you don't want them to to feel any kind of distress. No, and I don't want them to feel insecure because obviously, you know, it's easy to kind of go off the rails when trauma and stuff happens or I wanted my kids to feel so safe and so confident and so secure. Even like writing the book, I got the illustrators, you know, to, to draw my babies in the book so they'd feel amazing. You know, I just... I wanted to give them everything, but obviously every mother does, but it was just something a little bit different from obviously where I was coming from. I think that's where I've kind of gone wrong, I guess. <laughs> but you've not gone wrong at all. This is a story that explains so much. Mm. You focus on managing other people's pain. Yeah. I suppose my curiosity at the moment is... Who looks after you? Because what I am aware of is the person who can look after you is sleeping in the downstairs bedroom. Yeah. Who looks after you? Yeah, myself. (laughs) Right, which means there is no one there who can allow you to do this that you're doing with me. No. I think it's something about you really struggle with other people's distress, particularly if you feel responsible. Yes, very much so. The fact that the only real issue you've got at the moment is that your kids are in your bed, I think you're quite a remarkable woman. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) But you're exhausted. Yeah. Because I think you're carrying... But I don't mean just in terms of responsibility, my love, because I think your default mm. mode is to do. If mm. I do, if I keep busy, <laughs> yeah, that's right. then I keep going. Get going, that's right. But I think if you sit still like you are with me and reflect... Mm. I know. I, I haven't actually sat down and reflected like this, so it has just come back. But how much do you think that the children's attachment to you, this sort of anxious attachment, mm. the anxious over-attachment yeah. that you, you, you experience, mm. how much do you think that might be because... They're also picking up something in you that they feel they need to look after. It's interesting. Sometimes yes. children don't just yes. respond because of their own need, but they are actually like little emotional barometers. My eldest is very sensitive. She's really good, like really well behaved. The youngest is, I found her really difficult. And she used to get really angry with me when I'd come back from the hospital. She'd just 
pushed me into the room and stay in there. And I was like, my goodness, where's this come from? My children have never, ever been pushed in a room. I've never even put my children on time out. Well, she was punishing you for leaving her. That's exactly what it is. So I stayed in the room like a mug. I used to say, am I allowed to come out yet? Yes, and it's interesting because that story gives us some inkling of when the power dynamic shifted. Yeah. And the, the children, in a sense, have been handed the power to decide how they manage their emotional state. Hmm. Being in your bed, telling Dad to go away. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. A little bit earlier, you used the word friend. So I just wanted to talk about that because if we are only our children's friend, Mm. it's difficult for us to set the boundaries and have the consistency Mm. that you've asked me to help you with at the beginning of our chat. Mm. Because as a friend, we're more ambivalent about being clear sometimes because we don't want to upset the person who is our friend. Whereas children sometimes need clarity, which may upset them, such as, darling, I know you want mummy to go in the room, but mummy's not going in the room. Yeah. And then you might have a little girl having a tantrum. Yeah. But then you might have a little girl after a tantrum you could have a cuddle with. So you could actually Mm. engage with that part of her that was angry and terrified that mummy was in hospital and had lost her hair. But you would put a boundary there to not allow her to powerfully Mm. manage it in her own way, Mm. which actually wasn't going to be very helpful for Mm. her. Mm. Now, this isn't a criticism of you, but the difficulty is that you're trying to support them without them becoming distressed because their distress is going to feel unbearable for you. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty impossible to parent our children without really upsetting them sometimes because we're actually not their friend. We become their friends as they're older. But actually, as a parent, our job sometimes is to say no. And the issue for your girls is how can you help them develop resilience? Yeah, that's right. 
This is exhausting, isn't it? This level of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think we should take a bit of a break and I'm going to leave you with, with two things to think about. Okay. okay. The first thing I want to ask you to think about is you really understanding and accepting that you need support, mm-hmm. not because you have mental health issues, not because that you're not coping because you are. Mm. You need support to allow yourself to be vulnerable, Mm. see that as a strength Mm. and process what you've been through. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And then the second thing is in terms of the girls, we both agree that for them to be resilient, Mm. young women, as you know better than most people, uh, life can be randomly unbelievably shit. Yeah. They now need to be able to deal with difficult feelings but not allow those difficult feelings to put them into behavioural patterns that don't really help them learn how to manage emotion. Right, yeah. So it's not that we're either of us are saying co-sleeping is wrong, mm-hmm. but we're saying in your situation, both in terms of rescuing your relationship with your partner, mm. but also in terms of your girls going to sleep happily, not worrying that their mother is not going to be there in the morning. Yeah. We probably do need to think about how you can move them back into their own beds. Absolutely. You have a thought about how you would want to do that. And then after we've had our break, we'll address both those issues. Okay. And then hopefully you'll leave here with some with some really good information and some answers. Yeah. Okay, Donnie's now on a break and we are doing our halftime chat. I would describe Donia as a as a superwoman. Would you I've never met anybody who's taken she takes so much on. She's so busy. What is that indicative of? What does it mean when you get into that mode in your life, Claude? Why do you think you do it? Maybe to stop the noise. That's correct. So it's something about stopping the noise and there is a lot of noise, isn't there? She's had so much to deal with and she is terrified for her girls. Terrified for her girls. And what really struck me is then she told this story about her sister and finding out on the radio her sister who took her own life, leaving two children. Mm. So she saw what happened to those two kids. And what is also extraordinary to me is the guilt that she feels. She was like, I just, you know, I just didn't want... Her first reaction when she was told, was, I'm worried about my mum, and then I just can't do this to my family. You mean when she was told about her cancer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She has a huge overdeveloped sense of responsibility to others. Um, And, you know, ask any parent, any good parent, um, you know, what is the sense of responsibility you feel to your children? I mean, it's, you know, you can't describe it. There are no words. It's, It's beyond words. It's huge. But I think when it gets mixed up with the kind of narrative that we hear from Donya, who is a remarkable woman, and her sister taking her own life, um, uh, you know, then you start to understand how everything then gets kind of squashed down into a huge, almost undefinable issue. Yeah. That then gets projected outwards. And so she's anxious for her daughters and her daughters are anxious for her. I remember you said to me, it was a long time, but like literally 15 years ago, and I've used it 
all the time. I mean, much to my children's chagrin. Um, <laughs> never know how to say that word, so I use an accent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It helps. Um, <laughs> is you used to say to me, do you know what a child's safest word is? To make a child feel truly safe. And I would be like, no, is it more ice cream? Is it come here, mum, you'll just cuddle you and cuddle you and cuddle you and cuddle you. And you went, actually, the thing that makes them feel the safest is the word no. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, your kids are slightly older than mine, but when they go, Mom, can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have those new trainers? And can I also have, like, ice cream for breakfast? Or, I mean, they don't ask for that. But when you go, no, no, you can't go out tonight, or no, you can't have this for breakfast, they take it. They go, OK, are those two girls crying out for a no? Well, not that they would not define. No, 100%. But yes, I think in that situation, for me, the word no is containment. Yes. It's actually putting the brakes on something. It isn't going to always be met with, oh, thanks so much. No. I feel so much better you've said no. And that, I think, is the issue for a lot of parents. And with Donia, of course, because her daughters are going to push back hard and they're going to be upset and she's got her sensitive oldest daughter and then she's got her stubborn youngest daughter who successfully used to put her into timeout when she came back from having her round of chemotherapy, the girls are going to push back because it's going to make them feel unsettled and it's going to take away a, a power and control that has been handed to them. And that's where the problem is, because I think Donya would like some kind of solution that does not involve any distress on the part of her children. But that's not how life works. And actually, children becoming upset, parents remaining consistent, children eventually calming down, everything settling, things changing, atmosphere lifting. That's an incredible lesson for life. And it's it's a huge part of, of building emotional and psychological resilience in children. One of the best things I think my mum ever said to me is she'd grounded me again. I was 15 and I remember turning around and I shouted at her, I don't like you. And she replied back, you're not supposed to. (laughs) Yeah, we're not their friends. And it was an enormous relief to me. I was like, oh, thank goodness, because I've been thinking you were a bit of a loser. (laughs) But that's okay. And that's okay and we'll all survive it. I'm not allowed to go to another party. I get it. You want me to go upstairs and read a book or whatever it is. Yeah. Are you worried when Donia leaves today that those kids will never leave her bed. How How is she going to do this? It feels insurmountable. You know, she's a woman who, when she's on a mission and she knows what she needs to yeah. do, she's smart. She's a self-made, very successful businesswoman. When she's got a set of instructions, she'll follow them. So I will talk through with her what feels m- most manageable for her and we'll work out a plan. That's not the difficult bit. What's the difficult bit? Is her emotional resilience. And that's there where you see the separation anxiety with children in a bed in these sorts of scenarios, works both ways. It's a two-way street, right? And her resilience, I think, is dependent on her partner becoming more involved, her partner becoming uh, her support, but I think also her having much deserved and I think quite late in the day, but nevertheless necessary space with someone like me, a professional who can... Listen, I don't think she needs a lot of sessions, but she needs a space to allow herself to be distressed and recognise that it's a helpful process and that vulnerability is a strength. But of course, the more we deny ourselves the opportunity to address these profound emotional traumas that, you know, some of us will have in our lives, if we don't address that, 
we weaken ourselves. All right, let's go back to the second half of the session where you give your practical advice. The most important thing for you is you didn't break. Look at you. You're fine. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. If your girls get upset because you have to say no to them. Yeah, exactly. They won't break. No, that's right. They might hate you at times. Yeah. But, you know, we're not their friend, right? We're their parent. That's right. And also the whole Mm. of the point of raising children, as my mother very helpfully said to me, probably about 10 minutes after my daughter was born, my mother said to me, well, darling, of course, now you've got to prepare her to leave you. And I was like... (laughs) Thanks for that, Mum. I've only just got her, you know, give me just give me a few more minutes before I contemplate that moment. It is about preparing them not to be with us. Yeah. But yeah. the point is, when our kids leave us, That's the right. rest of the world isn't going to say, of course you can you can be in control of this and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. when I work with parents with children who are given too much power and control and don't hear the word no, my concern is for how they're going to cope in Later. the world. Yes. You know, if we can't have the scenarios and play it out with them as parents, we're kind of setting them up to fail. That for me is like, actually, yeah. Yeah. And that's really sunk into me. And that's going to help you then Mm. when you are doing the sleep training and you're doing the saying no. In those moments, we can all feel weak and just go, okay, 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 yeah. okay, fine, whatever you want. I've just, yeah. you know, particularly yeah. if we're sleep deprived as, as you right. have been and mm. extremely unwell as you were. Mm. So, you know, we get that. But then we're, we're just caving into the short-term pressure. That's right. And we're not considering the long-term That's need. Right. And I think now you've got that, the yeah. long game. Yes. You can sustain yourself yeah. through the difficulties. A bit like when you were building your business. If you if you knew where you could visualise where right. you were going, that's right. you could deal with the stress yeah. of building the business. Yeah. So let's now focus on the practicalities of the girls, okay? Mm-hmm. What do you recognise needs to change in order for, for that end goal to be achieved with your girls? I think I need to put a routine and stick to the routine in place, read them a story in their own bedrooms and just make sure that they go to sleep in their own rooms. Mm-hmm. And if they come up to my room, you know, I know it's going to be tough at the beginning. However, I need to then take them back down to their own room. And if it needs me sitting with them five minutes until they've gone back to sleep, then that's what we're going to have to do. What do you notice has just happened here? Who just designed your sleep programme for your children? Yeah, myself. Absolutely. I said nothing. It's perfect. Absolutely mm. correct. I'll go through the detail with you in a bit more so we can Mm. practice and think through just some of the eventualities and what to do if, because it's not going to be smooth sailing. We both know that. Yeah. Let's just be really clear. You came here saying, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. You've just revealed that you do know exactly what to do. You're a Mm. smart woman. Mm. And from a psychological behavioural perspective, it's absolutely correct the way you've described it. Mm -hmm. So you coming here wasn't for me to tell you what to do, was it? It was for me to help you give yourself permission to do it. I like that. Yeah, very true. Why did I need to give you permission, do you think? What was getting in the way of you being able to do what you correctly want to do? My guilt. But now I feel, just from the first session, my guilt's just been lifted and... I'm not being an unkind mum by making them go into their own beds, but I'm giving them boundaries. You know, they're probably a bit confused what's going on. They are, yeah. 
And they need to see you having those conversations with their father. Yes. And he needs to be involved in the sleep programme. Yes. And he needs to take the girls out on his own. Yes. And if the girls say, no, we want mummy there. No, mummy's doing this. And they need to build that bond with their dad, independent mm. of you. Yeah. You don't need to be around them all the time, darling, to make sure they're okay. Yeah. That no. is your fear. And I yeah. get it. But I need to release you from that. So yeah. let, let's just agree that. Yes. He needs to have little routines with both of them, maybe with the eldest, he and, and she go swimming every Saturday. And then with the youngest, he on a Sunday has a different activity. Yeah. You know, you build those memories. So when the girls are older, they say, oh, I used to love dad. I used to love our time when we did that. Mm. You actually need that. You've got yeah. to give yourself some permission. You're exhausted, mm-hmm. recovering from all sorts of things and yeah. running a huge business. Mm. Let's go back to the specifics of the programme then. Are they now sharing a room or... Yes. Are they sharing a room? And they're both in a single bed? Yes. Okay, so you could, to begin with, have the beds next to each other so they... Okay. They they co-sleep, so they've got each other. So one of the things that's very difficult for children when they stop co-sleeping with a parent, if that's what the family decides to do, um, is that obviously it's that sense of falling asleep next to someone. We want to gradually change something. You don't want to just kind of rip the plaster, the Band-Aid off sort of thing, you know? I wouldn't implement it until you've discussed it with your partner. I think then you want to have a discussion with the girls and explain what's going to happen. Yeah. And then I think what's very helpful for children is some kind of incentive. So, for example, we could have a rule that you know, people fall asleep in their own bed and in the morning there'll be something under your pillow or something. Yeah. As you nail that, and probably to begin with, you'll need to sit quite close to them both as mm-hmm. they're falling asleep, but then you would gradually sit further and further away and then you'd mm-hmm. sit in the door and then you'd sit outside the room and, you know, eventually that would they'd fall asleep. Yeah. Then up the ante and say, right, now you get the reward for falling asleep in your bed and staying asleep all night. When you're looking at sleep with kids, you have to kind of split it into two pieces. The Mm -hmm. falling asleep on Mm -hmm. your own in your bed is one skill. Right. The sleeping through the night is another skill. skill. They're kind of separate. Right. Yeah. Okay. So with you next to them for all these years, Mm. if they wake in the night or stir, because, you know, we go through a sleep Mm. cycle, so we'll have moments where we stir, we turn over, we might open our eyes a bit and then fall back to sleep. Mm -hmm. They've got... The smell of you, the warmth of you and the feel of you next to them. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's not going to be there. You are their sleep cue. Mm -hmm. So you take away a sleep cue. Mm -hmm. You have to recognise that in the night they will wake. And what you've experienced previously is they will scream. We've now got to think, what will you do if that happens? Mm -hmm. My advice to you would be, if you have to keep returning them, be careful that you don't reassure them too much. Okay. Because what they'll then learn is, okay, if we wake up... Mummy will come down. We accept she's not going to let us go in her bed anymore. Yeah. But she will stick around and have a chat and a cuddle. So that's kind of quite nice. <laughs> so you've got to be careful that you don't create another yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. You take them in quietly. Shh, shh, shh. If they're crying, it mm. is what it is. Yeah. But what you could do initially is that's when you could join them in their bed. If you're so exhausted, mm. that's when yeah. you could join them in their own bed okay. so that we move them in your bed to you in their bed yes. and then eventually when we're trying to tackle the second part which is the waking in the night yeah. you then when you go in you don't get into bed with them you just 
wrap yourself in a sleeping bag and lie on the floor. Yes. And then, so you do the gradual withdrawal bit that you've been doing at bedtime. Yes. Then at that yeah. point, but don't try and do it all at the same time because you're literally, you're yep. self-combust. <laughs> and just more basically, now we've talked about sleep, in terms of discipline, yeah. particularly with the little one who sounds like she's a force to be reckoned with, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> that's what we want. But obviously not that it becomes self-destructive. No, that's right. Um, <laughs> is What's the issue? The ferocity of her reaction or, or what's what's your problem? Because mm, sometimes she used to like make me really anxious and I was like, oh my God, she's going to kick off. She's going to kick off. Once she kicks off, she'll, she won't give in and she won't stop. So it'll go on for hours. We're sort of doing a big circle now, aren't we? Because it's about your distress tolerance. That's my, mm. that's another mm. term I want you to think about. When your daughters get distressed, when your little one throws an Oscar-winning tantrum, it triggers you hugely back to the Mm. hospital corridor and the screams. Mm. You have to be able to stay in your rational brain. Don't flip into the limbic emotional brain. Stay in your rational brain and think, is her reaction telling me that there's something seriously wrong? I.e., do I need to reverse my decision because it's going to cause her some kind of harm or Mm. pain? Mm. And if the answer is no, she's just massively pissed off. Yeah. Then you need to do some breathing. Yeah. You need to think the long game. Mm. You need to recognise that her learning to self-soothe is going to set her up really well for life. Mm. And then you need to be able to walk away and go make yourself a cup of tea. Mm. And again, you and your partner have to agree this, Mm. that if she tantrums for a while... You go in and you say, when you stop, you know, we can have a cuddle. Yeah. Everybody has to remain calm. Thomas, he's very, very calm. So he'll, they listen to him. But obviously, if I shout, you know, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. But also, it's, a, it's an odd one, isn't it, really? Because if we shout to our shouting child because we want them to stop yeah. shouting. I mean, yeah. You and Thomas, do you do date night? No. Have, have you got a babysitter you can leave the girls yeah. with? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's time you two put some attention back on your relationship and yeah. once a week hire mm. the babysitter. Yeah. Even if you just go and see a good film and yeah. have a laugh and mm. walk back holding hands. I think mm. this is the stuff that's going to powerfully mm. shift the dynamic in your relationship. Yeah. But it's very easy to lose sight of each other, isn't it, when we have little children and we're both busy working. Mm. But, you know, relationships need to be nurtured. Mm. What do you need to do for yourself? Be hard on myself, just be a bit kinder to myself and not actually just eradicate this guilt, you know. Could you do it alone or do you think it would be worth speaking to somebody? I mean, I'm so open now. Before I was like, no, I don't want to speak to anyone. But yeah, I mean, I could, I probably do need some work on that, if I'm honest with you. I would recommend you could either talk to your GP who can refer you. But also if you wanted to find someone yourself, Mm. the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy has a fantastic register of, Mm. of, of therapists. You need to make sure that the therapist is HCPC registered healthcare professions council because okay. a lot of people call themselves a therapist but they don't have any particular training that's right. recognised. Okay. Look at the British Psychological Society website to find someone with my training. Yeah. That's bps.org.uk. Okay. And I think that's some space that would be yeah good for you because I think you also need to learn to allow someone 
to look after you. And you are a resilient woman, but you're also a woman who I think highlighted what I see often clinically is that mostly parents don't come to me because they don't know what to do. Mm. They come to me because they need me to give them permission to do it. Mm. Good, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So I'm going to let lovely Claude come in here and sort of debrief you a bit. Okay. Okay, I'm going to head back into the session room just to chat to Donia and see how she got on. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling much better now. My kids are slightly older than yours, but are you prepared for how angry they're going to be? Yeah, they'll be pretty pissed off. They really will. (laughs) But I think Tanya's so right. Not like a Band-Aid, not home. And this is happening. But I just sit there and I just know these little girls, they don't know what's happening. They're at school today. They're going to come home and everything's all changed. (laughs) What did you find the most helpful? It just made me realise that actually I don't need to carry this guilt around with me anymore. And, you know, I can implement You didn't do anything. No, that's right. You didn't do anything. So when we hear you, I know there is... I mean, we all feel guilty about stuff, but I'm like, no, no, after everything you've been through, (laughs) I'm not allowing you to feel guilty. I'm interested. Does he know you're here today, Thomas? Um, He knows I'm at a podcast that he doesn't know what it's about. (laughs) I mean, that alone is quite fascinating to me. I mean, I bore my husband with... I've already told him that I've had half a bag of Maltesers. I mean, I'll be honest, it's not a brilliant relationship. He yawned quite a lot. But... It's fascinating to me that you come here and talk about everything that's so important. Mm. What are you going to say to him when when you leave here and you're in a cab or on the bus or whatever and you phone him? Will you tell him? You know what? I think I'm going to for the first time. After that, I've, I've realised it's more me. I need to just make a little bit more of an effort um, and not block him out completely, which I do. Will you so, both come back maybe? Yeah. Maybe that's a good idea. Or I'll come round. I'll do your washing. <laughs> I'm phenomenal. <laughs> Sorted. And so I thought she came in and you were going to have to draw out a timetable of sleep routine and explain all of that. But then in the end, she knew it. What, so what, what's that about? As a clinician, the experience that I bring to this is I see my role as enabling people to access what they know. So I often find in the work I do, it's not that I'm a an expert, it's more that I'm enabling people to give themselves permission to do things that they're struggling to do. So the question really for me is never, what do I need to tell them that they need to do? The question for me as a clinician is, why are these people unable to do it? Yeah. And that's when we got into Donya's story. I think you've said to me before, we know what to do. What we need to find out is why we're not doing it. Exactly. Exactly. I just want to say, I'm not here to tell people how to live their lives. And and honestly, I really don't think I should. That's not my role. Obviously, the only time I do, and I do want to say this, is if I think people are causing harm to themselves or others. But otherwise, as a psychological therapist, my job is not to life coach. I'm here to facilitate a process of understanding. There may be some clinical issues that need to be addressed. And obviously, that's an area of training that I have. So there's a clinical expertise there. 
But the fundamental reality is if you if I come at this as, as an expert, then I do nothing more than create a dependency because the person will always have to come back then for the mm. next bit of advice. So my job isn't to tell people how to raise their kids. My job is to help people understand why as perfectly competent parents, they can't operationalise, they can't do it. Are you worried about her daughter's rage? It's very common that uh, once boundaries are put in, the rage is never what people expect. It's almost as if children breathe a huge sigh of relief. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it really is. You know, that's, I suppose, where we understand the containing nature of setting boundaries, that it actually reduces anxiety and the escalation of emotion rather than increase it. So the reaction might be cross, but that will quickly dissipate. I like being told what to do. I mean, I know I'm 47. I'm not four <laughs> trying to sleep in my mum's bed, although I would, and P.S. she'd have me. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it is, it is it's soothing being told. What would be your plan B, Claude? Let's hear it. I want her to work with him is what I really want. I mean, it'll be fine because I'll be downstairs in the kitchen. She can just come and talk to me. Cooking a risotto and lighting the scented candles. Lighting the scented candles. Michael Bublé would be playing live. Would you get him We round? can call Michael, of course. He's on speed dial. It's a beautiful day. Yes, it is, Thomas. Yes, it is. And just to say, if you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button and you'll receive free episodes as soon as we publish them. And please rate, comment and share. It's a good way of... Well, spreading the podcast, if you will. Next time we meet Joanna, who wants to tell the story of her marriage with her partner who has transitioned. It's a journey, isn't it? You take it one step at a time. And it was horrendous to begin with. People will have judged me for staying with Helen. I had people say, oh, you shouldn't stay. It's not fair to keep the children in that relationship, you know, in that household. If you're interested in taking part in future episodes of How Did We Get Here, please email parenting at somethingelse.com. That's parenting at something, without a G, else.com. This podcast was possible with the help of lovely people at Something Else. The sound engineer is Benjamin Lincoln. The mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer is Hannah Talbot. The producer is Selena Ream. And the executive producer is Chris Skinner, with additional production from Steve Ackerman. Thank you so much for listening. Also from something else. Katy Piper's Extraordinary People. Join Katy for a series of powerful and inspirational conversations with people who have triumphed over adversity. With guests including Fern Cotton. And what about when you get really lazy journalism? So like people that draw just one line, they take it out of context. And that's really sad because... It is, it is. And I've also been on the receiving end of it so, Mm. so many times. Sometimes to really tragic levels for me where I've really not felt able to cope with it. Yeah. Zoe Sugg and Nadia Hussein. I think the the thing with women, firstly, is that women sometimes don't always like to see other women succeed. Mm -hmm. I I think think that's right, yeah. Yeah, and and I think there's a lot of that and I think that's why 
just it, it's really hard sometimes because it, 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 in the last four years I've changed so much mm. listen now in Apple Podcasts Spotify and all good podcast apps <laughs>